that little cake will go a long way, won't it? <laughs> how do you start this timer? How thoughtful. There's a letter right over here saying, hold your talk down, and then they've got a timer right here, and I brought my cell phone up here. I don't know how to make a call with it, but I found the stopwatch function. <laughs> my wife told me to take a timer from home, and I, and I, I forgot it. So, Anyway, my name is Dee. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. I want to thank uh, I want to thank Deb for asking me to speak. Jack, I'm with you. Uh, I am not going to lay the blame out there on some faceless, nameless committee. Um, Deb is the one that made the call. She heard the tape and she asked me anyway. So if you ain't tickled pink when I'm done here today, see Deb. You know, I don't want anybody to to try and kick my butt in the parking lot because of something I said, and I'm not telling you my room number. So there we have it. You know, this has been a wonderful, wonderful experience. I uh, arrived at the airport, and Deb said she would meet me at the baggage claim. Um, I did not know that the baggage claim was a two-day trip away from where I landed. Uh, I was uh, I was a little disappointed. It was raining in Omaha when I left yesterday morning, and I didn't um, I didn't get my workout in. I didn't get to go for a walk. Uh, we made up for that in the airport here in Minneapolis. It was inside. Uh, the sad part was it was it was sunny outside here. I could have walked outside. Uh, I am I am so grateful to be here. I am I'm excited. You know, it's and I am reminded constantly of how small my world is becoming as I get older. Um, I came here and uh, uh, I last night I was looking up and I saw this beautiful woman and I said, oh, my gosh, that's Polly. You know, Polly and my wife spent a weekend together somewhere. I don't remember where it was or what they were doing, but I do remember when Carol came home, she said, we would never have had that much fun if you'd have been there. Uh, and then last night, Jack, I just I can't I just can't thank you enough. Uh, I, I just what a what a great great couple of speakers we had last night. Give him a round, yeah. And last night before Kathy was talking, I was uh, I was making one of my 16 trips to the restroom. And I got about halfway down the aisle here, and I ran into Ken B. from Omaha. I see Ken every weekend at, or every uh, every Tuesday at Fox Hall. Uh, Fox Hall is the largest AA meeting between Chicago and, and the West Coast. And uh, Ken is a member in good standing. And it was it's very interesting that Kathy talked so much last night about working with women in prisons. And that's been one of Ken's uh, big things. I know I saw Ken, and he said, wow, it's come to this, huh? I saw you on the program, and I thought, really? Hmm. Uh, and and also we have some friends here, uh, Wayne and Kathy B. You know, uh, my wife sponsors Kathy or did sponsor her. I don't know what the status of that situation is now. I try and keep out of, of the of that mess. You know, I don't I don't know who she sponsors or, or why or how. Uh, once in a while, I I end up taking a call and uh, do the best I can. You know, there are some things I don't ever understand. I'm a testosterone-based unit, not an estrogen-based unit. And so. Um, there is a lot of estrogen in my life, however, not on my part. I do have to tell you that I'm one of the, uh, probably one of the few Al-Anons that has a drug of choice. Now, that may come as a surprise to you. Uh, that drug is um, Percocet. Now, I don't care to take Percocet, but I love it. 
About six or seven years ago, Carol had a, uh, some minor surgery. You know, that's, my, that's, that's something that, that hurts like hell on you, but it doesn't bother the doctor a bit, and he can charge you a lot for. And as a result of that surgery, she had to wear a cast for a couple of days, and, uh, and they gave her some Percocet to ease the minor discomfort she was going to experience. Now, that's, that doesn't work for me. Minor discomfort, I take one aspirin instead of two. When they start, per, you know, when they're talking Percocet, I'm talking pain now. But anyway, they gave it to her. Uh, I woke up in the middle of the night about two days into that experience, and, and Carol was missing, and so I went looking for her. And she had gone downstairs, and she was sitting in a recliner at the foot of the stairs. And as I rounded the corner from the landing, she looked up at me and she said, I love you so much. I am so glad I married you. And I said, you took the pill, didn't you? <laughs> she said, that didn't have anything to do with it. <sighs> yes, sirree. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. Percocet is a great thing, you know. Yeah, you know there are, there are two things there are two things that have kept our marriage together. If if, uh, if I get home and don't find a box on the steps, and we can stay together until July, we'll have been married 18 years. Uh, there's one. Um, thank you. I believe me, I didn't do it. There are two things that help with that. Number one is the second tradition. Now, I don't know if you heard that. Uh, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, and it is not me. Um, she has that posted on the front of the refrigerator. Uh, the other thing are those two little words that every man should learn when he just right after he says "I do." Yes, dear. Mm-hmm. That works. That that works wonders. Um, this is not my first marriage. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about what I was like, what happened, and what I am like today. Uh, I sometimes get hung up on what I was like. Um, and I think it's more important for me to try and remember and try and live in what happened and what I am like today and what I want to be like today. Um, I, I frequently don't know how to start these things, um, but this morning I was reading from our Courage to Change book, and it says, in the words of Socrates, life contains but two tragedies. One is not to get your heart's desire, and the other one is to get it. You know, I always thought all my life that all I needed to do was get my way. That's the only problem I've ever had, is not getting my way. I was, uh, I was born the last of Bill and Dorothy's um, eight children. Uh, my mother was pregnant 11 times, and when I look back on it as I was doing my fourth and fifth step, uh, that was somewhat of a miracle because I was used to waking up for the first 15 years of my life and my parents screaming at one another. I cannot imagine them becoming close and intimate enough to, um, to, for her to become pregnant 11 times. Uh, a miracle. It's a miracle. I was the last of, her, of their children. They finally got it right and quit. Uh, I was the baby. I was spoiled rotten. And um, that is something that I, that I understood. You know, if I threw a fit long enough, I could get my way. And I thought that's what would make me happy was getting my way. Another thing that I understood uh, later as I was doing that fourth and fifth step was that I was always looking for the next thing that was going to make me happy. And that was always something out there. It was always you or you or them or the car or the toy or whatever it was, but I was always looking for something else. It was always going to be the next thing. Uh, I, was, I was born in a small town in Indiana. I used to say I grew up there. I did not. My sponsor said I can't say that until I grow up. Uh, um, 
when I was uh, when I was 15, my parents divorced, and that was one of the most blessed events in my life because that that I didn't have to hear them fight and argue every morning after that. Uh, we moved from Indiana to Omaha, Nebraska, at that point, and I was sure that when I got to Omaha, everything was going to be all right. Um, that uh, we moved early in the summer. I went to school, and I went to South High School, which at that time was the largest school west of the Mississippi River in the United States, and. Uh, I got. I had gone down in the, early in the summer and registered. I got down there. They had forgotten me. There were more people in the class that I was in than there were in all 12 grades in the little town that I moved out of. Now, I have always had kind of a wise mouth. Uh, when I lived back in that little town in Akron, I was. A, I have, I've always been kind of. A, I had some health problems when I was a kid. I was a puny, sickly-looking kid, and uh, because of my mouth, I got beat up by all the guys in town and some of the girls, and. <laughs> And I was always concerned uh, about uh, my masculinity and my manhood, and I always wanted to prove that I was a tough guy, you know. Well, I, uh, I did survive the last two years of that high school out there in, in, in Omaha. Um, I graduated. I think they gave me a diploma because they didn't want me back another year. There was a minor incident. You know, Jack talked last night about a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, and, and I found myself in the dean's office and in the principal's office, and it was only through the graces of the track coach that I got back into school because they needed me to stumble over hurdles for one more track meet. Um, I uh, I really didn't have a plan for my life. You know, it's it's a great to see the to to see the uh, theme of the conference this weekend is a design for living because I I have never had a plan for my life. I do not know what I want to be if I grow up. And um, I just have gone from one thing to the next. And I was hanging around with a bunch of guys, and one day we were down next. There was a little trailer outside the post office there in South Omaha, and there was a guy in a really sharp suit. And um, I liked the looks of the suit. The guy was um, basically what he was as a salesman. You know, and his, his deal was to sell you his product, and I bought it. You know, I was only 17 when I graduated from high school. Um, the guy in the sharp suit was actually a Marine recruiter. Um, it, it is a pretty uniform. I, I have one today, and it fits, by the way. And um, I, I thought that um, the next thing that was going to make me feel good was I was going to be a Marine. I wanted to prove that I was a man because I was tired of getting beat up on, and, you know, I was like the guy in the before in the Charles Atlas, you know, getting the sand kicked in my face. And um, so I went home, and I begged my mommy to sign a paper so I could go prove I was a man. And uh, she did. She said, you're going to hold this against me. You're going to resent it. And, and I, I just showed her how I could hold a resentment because I never told her. Uh, now, I, I knew that that was the thing that was going to make me okay, that was going to make my life good. And when I, when I got on that plane to leave from Omaha to go to San Diego, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to spend the next 20 or 30 years of my life in the Marine Corps. And that lasted until I got off the bus at the recruit depot. And they started screaming at me to stand on a set of those yellow footprints. Um, they were mean and disrespectful to me, and I could not believe it. Um, they used language that you would definitely not use from a podium here, I would hope. Uh, uh, they alluded to a relationship between my mother and I that I knew had not existed. <laughs> And I did find it necessary to inform my drill instructor that my parents had been married for 18 years when I was born. Um, I knew right away that was, that was about all it took to convince me that that was not, you know, the next thing that was going to make me okay was getting out of there. Um, I knew that uh, I knew that that life was not for me. Um, 
I spent some time in in Southern California. You know, we were talking last night with uh, Sarah about uh, Costa Mesa and some of the places that I was stationed around in that area. Um, uh, but I did uh, I I did serve my time. I did um, get an honorable discharge. Uh, there are miracles because there are some reasons why I, that possibly could not have happened for me. Um, again, uh, I was uh, I was a misunderstood person. Uh, they didn't really, really know how I felt, and it wasn't possible for me to tell them. Um, however, uh, I got out of there, and I didn't really have a plan for anything to do. You know, I didn't have a career in mind. I didn't have uh, I didn't have any education. I didn't have any schooling. I had I had uh, taken some training while I was in the Marine Corps that would have would have stood me in good stead on the outside. They do teach you other things besides killing people. Um, that's that's not everybody is a basic marine, but they do give you other skills. I was trained in electronics. Um, I did decided, however, that when I got out of the Marine Corps, I didn't want uh, too much to do with the military. Right at that time, I had an offer for a job out at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska, where SAC headquarters were, and uh, I turned it down because I just didn't want to be um, around that. Uh, I had a friend who came over, um, and I was just sitting around the house, and he said, "You can just sit around," and I had. Uh, he, he had me go down and take a job, and uh, it turned out that my Marine training was going to stand me in good stead because what I did for the next 26 years was work at the post office. Uh, combat skills not necessary there, but it doesn't hurt, you know. <laughs> um, not too long after I uh, after I came back from the Marine Corps, I moved in with my family. Now. While I was away, um, when, I, when I went into boot camp, uh, some things happened in the community there. Uh, they decided to, uh, to build a school, and to do that, they had to buy up some property, and the property that they bought, some of the property they bought was the house we lived in, and my family moved. Uh, but when I got out of the Marine Corps, I found them, and, uh, and I moved in with them. And I had uh, two sisters and a brother who lived in a home with my mother. They bought the house together to provide a, a home for my mom who was uh, aging, and um, they didn't really understand how to live life. None of them had ever dated that I know of. Um, they had never been married. And uh, I lived there for a little while, and we didn't get along, and so I moved out. I moved in with a buddy of mine, a um, guy that I worked with. We had an apartment together, and uh, he and I had a little falling out. Um, what happened was... Um, he married my girlfriend, um, and uh, and I learned a little bit about resentment at that point. Um, justifiable resentment, you know, there are justifiable resentments. Uh, those are the kind that will kill us, the ones that we're absolutely entitled to, by the way, you know. Um, but uh, he uh, he moved out, and uh, I I discovered something else about myself at that point. I did not like to be alone. I had always been around people. I had always, I'd, I'd lived with my family. I'd always lived with a squad bay full of guys when I got out. I'm back with my family, then I was with this guy, and I was alone, and I didn't know how to do that. Um, a friend of mine had been a Marine Corps, passed through town, and he knew a gal. He introduced us, and uh, long story short, we got married. Uh, a very short courtship. It was about two weeks. Um, I'm not sure at the time we got married, I even knew her middle name. Um, but at that point, um, I was not any longer alone. We were not people who were really suited, but we had two children. Um, we were married for four years. 
We had two beautiful daughters. And at the end, at, at four years, it became obvious that something was badly wrong. Um, there were some problems after the birth of my second daughter. Um, there was some abuse there. And um, I took the kids and I moved out. Um, I was not very kind to that woman. I was not a good husband to her, and I can't stand here and tell you I was. Um, that's an amends. That's the only amends that I know of that I still have to make. And I don't know how to do it, and I don't know where to find her. Um, just to show you that the judicial system is not always wise, um, the judge gave me custody of those two kids. You know, I had not wanted to be a father. That's not what I went into marriage for. Uh, you know, we had we had agreed when we got married that uh, we weren't going to have any kids, and she got herself pregnant. And uh, <laughs> and there I was with two kids, you know, and I moved back in with my family. And uh, and always I'd, I'd always been the baby brother, you know. I was the one that wasn't too bright. Um, I was the one that knew how to live, though. See, I'd been all the way to San Diego and back. Uh, but I, I was the one that thought I was slick, hip, and cool. I knew how to live. I knew what to do. And uh, um, they thought that since I was living in their home, uh, they not only had the right to tell me how to live my life, but they also had the right to tell me how to raise my kids. Well, I took offense at that. In retrospect, they were doing what was best for the kids and for me. I wasn't willing to listen. Um, I uh, went out to my nephew's graduation in Indiana. I met a gal. And... Uh, a couple weeks later, we were married. Uh, short, not big on long courtships. Uh, I did know her middle name. It began with B. Married Miss Wright. I just didn't know her first name was always. Uh, that that was my record setter. Uh, we actually lived together for six months. Uh, I knew there were problems with the relationship uh, from the time that she moved in. She moved out from Indiana to live with us in Omaha there. Um, I, I came home one night. There was a, uh, we lived in an apartment. It was a very interesting situation. It was one of those deals where you walked inside and there was a light switch, but there wasn't a light overhead. It was, it was switched to, a, to an outlet, and there was a lamp plugged into that outlet always, you know, and I came home from work one night and I hit that switch and the, and the lamp didn't come on. Well, one of the things that she liked to do was move the furniture a lot. She would rearrange the furniture and I would come in and trip over it and cuss and, and uh, give her a bad time about it. Well, when the lamp didn't come off, I uh, didn't come on, I thought, well, I'll just kind of ease my way down the wall and I eased my way down and I reached around into the kitchen and I turned that light on and I looked around and she had, she had moved the furniture uh, back to Indiana. I, I knew right away that the problems with that relationship were, uh, were a little more serious than I had considered. And that, uh, that marriage ended badly. Um, and so what I did was, um, since I didn't have any furniture and I didn't have a lot of help, uh, short-term help that I needed to, to watch the kids because I had a daughter in kindergarten and the other one wasn't yet in school, uh, was I moved back in with my family. Now, some of you may begin to see a pattern here. (laughs) 
My family felt like, or this was my perception, that they had the right to tell me how to live and how to raise my kids. And they were trying to set unreasonable moral standards for me. Um, I thought my life was good. You know, I had a job. I had a place to live. I was, uh, I was a tax-paying citizen. I was law-abiding most of the time. And uh, I just didn't see that they had that right. Um, and a neighbor of mine down the street had a, had a party. There were a couple of houses down. went to a party. I met this gal at the party. And uh, a couple of months later, we got married. <laughs> and uh, uh, that, was, uh, that was probably not the wisest thing I ever did, you know. When I got to work in the steps, um, I, I discovered something um, that my 10-year-old daughter at the time that I was divorced from my third wife understood clearly. Um, I was trying to find a mom for those kids. When my third wife and I separated, uh, my daughter took me by the shoulders. I was sitting in the kitchen one morning having coffee and smoking a cigarette, and she came up and she took me by the shoulders and she said, Dad, we don't need a mom, okay? (laughs) So that was my last marriage for a while. Um, at that point, um, you know, something happened, uh, something very, very, um, very dramatic happened in my, uh, in my life two weeks after that wedding. Two weeks of the day after the wedding, my mother died. And in the house where, the, where she lived with my two sisters and my brother, um, she was like Reggie Jackson. She was the straw that stirred the drink. And she, uh, once she died, um, their resentments against each other and the things that they didn't like about each other came out um, in bitter, ugly ways. And my brother quickly moved out. Uh, When my marriage broke up two years later, I did go back there briefly. Uh, My sister told me very bluntly, she said, I want a place for those kids and I want to know that they're safe and that's the only reason you're coming here. If it was you alone, you would be looking for someplace else to live. Very, very matter of fact, very to the point. Um, during that period of time, as I was working at the post office, I got involved in an employee organization, and um, I was uh, working my way up through the ranks. I had been, uh, I'd finally gotten elected vice president of the union there. And there was a lady in our, um, in our office, and she had a husband and a daughter um, that had problems with alcohol. Um, I do want to go back and qualify myself. I want to, I, 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 there are a couple of things that I mentioned about my, uh, that, I, that I forgot to mention about my, my first and third wives. Um, they did tend to drink what I thought was excessively. Um, I never tried to stop them. You know, it talks about our lives will become better whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. Uh, I got a great deal of entertainment when my third wife was drinking. One night I came home from work and she was, she was arriving home at about the same time, which was not the plan. 
but it was a wintry night in Nebraska, and what had happened was the garage door had, uh, we had a detached garage, and the garage door had frozen shut. And I came around one side of the house, and she was, um, she was out in front of the garage, and it, had not, it, w- it was not coming up. And every time she would try and uh, pull it up, she would slide down, and she'd end up face down on the ground. And I stood there and watched that about three times and laughed. Uh, well, once she heard that, she got mad. She thought I should do something about it. No, I don't know what I could do about it. I can't unfreeze it. Uh, I said, why don't you just leave the car there and come in the house? Uh, you know, that was one of the little things. Um, and another thing that, that I noticed um, early on, and this, this is kind of in retrospect, uh, was that they suffered from short-term memory loss when they, uh, when they took on great amounts of alcohol. They forgot things that were important to me. Uh, they forgot things like who they were married to. They forgot things like where they should spend the night and who with. Or is that with whom? I don't know. I don't want to be incorrect here. But, but that's, those are some of the kinds of things that used to bother me. Um, it never, ever occurred to me to think back that those, the only time that kind of stuff happened was when there was alcohol involved. Um, it didn't bother me to take a drink or not take a drink. I didn't care. It didn't do anything for me. I, you know, I, I listened to alcoholics talk, and I thought, God, I wish it had done for me what it did for them. <laughs> I never, you know, I never got smarter, faster, bigger. You know, the only time I was ever around alcohol, when I was in the Marine Corps, I used to hang around with a bunch of guys that drank, and we would go every weekend. And one of the reasons they liked to have me along was. Number one, I had a fake ID that I was afraid to use because you had to be 21 to drink. Well, somehow or other, and I don't know how I came in possession of this thing, but it showed up one day, and I would take it and I would go with them. You had to, you had to be 21 to even get into the bar. I would, I would go into the bar with them, but I wouldn't drink and I would leave. Well, it seemed like on Liberty Weekends, uh, the name of the game was, let's go out and see how long it takes us to get our butts kicked. And that's what we did for recreation, you know. But I was always around these guys that were drinking. This nose did not naturally bend to the left when I was born. That's a custom job, um, (laughs) thanks to the organ right underneath it. (laughs) I I never picked on a little fast guy, you know. I always picked the biggest guy because I thought I might get lucky and get a sucker punch. Either way, the fight was going to be over quick. Yeah. Usually with me on my back. Uh, you know, but back to, back to the, uh, the situation in our, in our office. I, was, um, I, had, I, had been, I had been married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced, and I absolutely thought my life was okay. Uh, because the only thing that was important to me was I had custody of the only two kids anybody ever pinned on me, and the other the other deal was that I had a job, and I was supporting. I was supporting those kids. I was self-supporting through my own contributions. Um, at that point, the kids and I had moved out from my family. Uh, we had uh, we had an apartment. Uh, this lady had a had a husband and a daughter. Uh, she was a secretary at the union office. Her name was Carol. And Carol had a husband and a daughter that had some problems with alcohol, and they ended up in treatment. This was uh, back in the 70s during the during treatment center phase, you know, the big craze where everybody went through treatment. Um, 
I would come out of the office on those occasions when the uh, union president couldn't come in. He would frequently call me up. Now, this never seemed to be a problem to me. I never understood it as a problem. It never bothered me a bit. But he would call me up and he'd say, you know, I stopped on the way home last night. I had a couple of beers. I'm going to be late this morning. Would you mind going in? And I, th- I thought it was interesting that, that he never had more than a couple and it bothered him that much. But I would go in and I would frequently, when I would, when I would go in and I would come out to, to Carol's office to see um, if she could do something for me, that she had a little blue book. And she would just fold it up, put it in a drawer. And uh, I asked her one time, I said, what is that? And she said, well, it's called the one day at a time. And I said, well, what is that? And she said, well, it's Al-Anon. And I said, what's that? And she explained to me about her husband and daughter, and they had been through treatment. And, uh, and I said, well, how long are you going have to have to do this? You know, how long are you have to go? Do you have to go all the way through the book or what? <laughs> she gave me some answer like, um, no, just today. No. And little did I know what was going to happen to me. Well, anyway... Uh, Carol had a friend, um, and this friend of hers was just, she was just really cute. And uh, I, I said to Carol, I said, you know, I'd really like to take her out. She said, oh, she introduced us, and they came down to the office, and we had plans to go to lunch. Something happened. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't go to lunch, but I sent money with them to buy lunch. You know, I wanted to impress her. Uh, and I kept asking her out, and every time I wanted to go out with her, she had something to do. Well, one weekend, um, I called her up and I said, are you doing anything this weekend? She said, well, yeah. She said, um, I am going someplace. And I said, oh, okay. So where are you going? She said, well, it's, it's called the Cornhusker Roundup. I said, really? I said, what's that? She said, well, it's just a bunch of people get together. And I thought, hmm. I said, well, would it be okay if I went along with you? And she said, yeah. So on August 19, 1983, I went to the Cornhusker Roundup. I didn't know how to register. She said, put down that you're in Al-Anon. Um, I really didn't. I really did not know what was going to happen at that point. I did not. I had no idea what the corner was. I thought it was something like the Axarban Rodeo, you know. <laughs> and my main interest in going was I wanted to see how they handled horse manure at the Holiday Inn, you know. <laughs> and I went in, and it was a room very much like this. They allowed smoking at that time, so you could hear the speakers. You couldn't really see them, you know. <laughs> your eyes burned. Your ears burned. Uh, you know, and a guy got up there and he, he said, hi, my name is Jack. They, they, you know, they read 12 of something and 12 of something else. And, and then this guy got up and gave the most intimate, disgusting details of his life. And I thought anybody with his IQ higher than his shoe size would do that. It's got to be crazy. You know? <laughs> nothing to this point has changed my mind about that. <laughs> but that was an amazing experience. And, you know, the, the amazing thing to me was... When I was in that room, I felt okay, you know. And the other thing that really interested me about it was, was after he got up, his wife got up and told the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so there, I had that experience, and uh, and we went we went on a Friday night, Saturday night, we went Sunday morning, and then uh, I called her on Monday, and I said, "What are you doing tonight?" She said, "I'm going to a meeting," and I said, "Could I go along?" Now, I don't know why I said I could go on because, you see, I didn't have alcoholism. I wasn't an alcoholic. I, drinking was not a big thing to me, take it or leave it. Um, and there were no alcohol. I was not living with an alcoholic. You know, I didn't hear anything. But she said, sure, come with me to that meeting. So I went with her. 
And interestingly enough, um, you know, I felt at home. And, it, and in those rooms, I felt safe. And I continued to go to meetings. I would go to a meeting on Monday and one on Friday. Um, and I did that every week for a number of months. And finally, um, I, I was outside the Friday night meeting one evening, and I said, you know what? Um, I just, I really feel like I identify with those poor people in there. However, I don't think I'm going to come back. And he said, why not? Well, there was this old guy standing there. And his, I could see his ears perked up. And he kind of edged over. And I said, well, you know, because I'm not living with an alcoholic. And he said, oh, well, I got my first tradition lesson right there. Tradition 3 says the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. Doesn't mean you have to be living with them now. It doesn't mean it has to happen today. It could have been in the past. And so they started enumerating for me. What about wife number one, wife number three, this girlfriend, the guy at the union office, this bozo you work with that you're always bitching about in the meetings? Okay, okay, okay. Continue to go to meetings, and I kept hearing about sponsorship. At one of the meetings um, I was at, you know, another thing that they talked about in meetings a lot was God. And a number of years before, I had decided that I was not going to believe in God. I wasn't going to have anything to do with God. I was never going to bow my knee to anybody or anything ever again in my life. And I stated that early and often. And one day I was in a meeting, and I was sitting across from this guy. And I said, uh, you know, it was one of those ask a basket meetings. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those. It's when somebody doesn't have the topic. And my friend Carol from the union office always had the envelope. You know, she had the envelope in her purse and it had the little sayings in it. And uh, they would pass it around and you take one and then you talk about what was on your little slip of paper. And I got this one about something about share about your spiritual life or talk about your higher power or something like that. And I started waxing eloquent about God and my, uh, how God didn't care for me and how I didn't care for him and I didn't need him. And this old guy, this obnoxious old fart, sitting across the table from me, said, you know, young man, I heard a speaker say something one time that I believe applies to you. He said, there's only two things you need to know about God. There is one and it ain't you. I was pretty sure he didn't know who he was talking to. <laughs> I had a lot of time in the post office, and I had been a paid killer for the U.S. government. So, <laughs> And about that time, I started hitting a series of meetings, and they talked about sponsorship, 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 sponsorship. And I just, you know, I went to the meeting one night. I went to, and they said they were going to have a newcomers meeting. And so I thought, I had never been to a newcomers meeting. You know, I never told them I was a newcomer. I didn't want anybody to know that I didn't know. I didn't know that they knew I didn't know, you know. Uh, No, I'm not going to do that. It's like Jimmy Williams used to say. Remember Jimmy? Yeah, you don't know until you don't know. Yeah. If you think you know, you don't know. Yeah. I can't remember all of it, and I can't say it as fast as Jimmy could, so I'm going to quit there. But anyway, it was all about sponsorships, right? You know, and I finally, I went to this newcomer's meeting, and 
And during that meeting, this Carol led the meeting. And what, what Carol talked about to the newcomer says, well, get, we suggest you get a sponsor. Now, I had gone into that, into that meeting deciding that I was going to ask her to be my sponsor. I thought, I'm, I've just heard enough of this. That must be something there I need. And so during that newcomer's meeting, she was talking to this lady, and she said, and we suggest that men sponsor men and women sponsor women. We don't... We just think it's a bad idea for it to be any other way. And I went, oh, man, what a deal. This, I mean, this God that I don't believe in doesn't want me to have a sponsor. Because I was all ready to ask Carol. She's the only person I know of. And the next Monday night, went to a meeting, and it was about sponsorship again. And I was walking out of that meeting, and I saw this guy in front of me. He had a cowboy hat on and cowboy boots, and I tapped him on his shoulder, and I said, Hey, would you be my sponsor? Turned around, it was that obnoxious old fart. And it was at that point that I began to pay him back. He looked at me and he, he took in a deep breath. And he said, do you have a sponsor now? And I said, no, I don't. He said, okay, we'll try it. We'll try it temporarily and see how it works. And we tried it temporarily for 11 years, uh, and it and it worked one day at a time. Uh, he he was uh, he expressed a deep concern about my recovery, about my condition. He said, uh, "You know, you're living a life that's not that's not conducive to uh, to a spiritual health." You know, and I I couldn't understand what he was talking about. He, he and he kept nagging me about working the steps. Uh, I think. I heard him say something to one somebody one time about he was gently prodding me. I uh, I understood it as nagging and bitching, um, but he kept saying, "Work the steps, work the steps, work the steps. Uh, the steps are the answer. Work the steps." And I decided one day, okay, I'm going to show you that those steps don't apply to me, so I'm going to do it. You know, and the steps are broken down into four groups. You know, there's there's giving up. That's the first three steps. It's all about giving up. Admitted we were powerless over alcohol. They talk about working that step and doing it. It's All you have to do is admit it. I'm powerless. I can't do it. My life has become unmanageable. I did not, I did not understand that. I didn't know, know what, what they were talking about, unmanageability. It never occurred to me that, that the circumstance of my life were just so goofy. Uh, my kids were miserable. They were afraid of me. They hated to see me come home, and they didn't have any place to go. And that was the reason they stayed. Um, the second step, and, and it, it's interesting that today's reading in the One Day at a Time book talks about this. Um, it says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Mean, this means that although we cannot help ourselves, there is help at hand. I am required to admit also that my own behavior was not sane. Okay. Now, I, I got upset about that because my grandfather died in a nut house. My family did not characterize it as an institution. They never called it the home. They always said my grandfather died in a nut house. I'm named after my grandfather. <laughs> and I used to take umbrage when people would question my sanity. You know, I would give them a demonstration. If they talk, if they called me insane, I would prove it to them, although I didn't realize at the time that's what I was doing. Um, my sponsor explained to me very very gently, he said, the second step does not talk about insanity. It assumes it. I said, oh. He said, you're here. 
You've admitted you belong. Therefore, what you're doing is not right. We've all heard that thing about the definition of insanity as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. The first time I heard that in a meeting, I said, that's a very good definition, but that doesn't apply to me. And this young lady looked at me and said, how many times have you been married? I would point out that at, after, after I had started going to meetings and had been going for a while, I, date, I was dating that lady. And by the way, that's, that, that experience is one thing that, that lets me know that the big book does apply to Alan and uh, There are two other books I read every day besides the One Day at a Time and the Courage to Change, and that's the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Bible. If you're an Alan and and you don't read the big book, um, and there are a lot of people who don't think you should, I don't, I'm not advocating that it be used in meetings, but I think you ought to have one. You ought to read it. You know, the first, uh, the first 164 pages of that book, absent 15 pages for Bob's story, 17 pages of what's left is to us, to wives. That's us. <laughs> there is an asterisk after that, and they've got a little explanation down at the bottom that when they started that book, when the book was written in 1939, most of the people in the rooms of AA were men. Um, 17 pages, that's more than 10% of that program of recovery is devoted to wives. And I think, it's, um, I think it's important for us to read and understand that. And I believe the fifth tradition tells us we should because we use the 12 steps of AA ourselves. Um, I lost my track here. I got, I got up on the soapbox. <laughs> I, believe, I believe I was insane. <clears throat> that is not the funny part of the talk. You know, I, I was so anxious to work those steps and to please that sponsor that I called him one night and I said, Leo, Leo, I have done it. And he says, oh, God, what have you done now? Because he knew that when I got that excited about something, that it was probably something bad had happened and was going to cause him some grief. Um, I told him, I said, I've taken the third step. I've turned my will and my life over to God. And he said, that's not what it says. Read it again. And he hung up the phone. Well, I showed him. I didn't call him for a couple of weeks. Um, made his life miserable. <laughs> you know, but, but I did go back and read that, and I even called somebody else about it, and I asked them, and they said, well, what it says is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him, you see. And I was having a lot of difficulty with that. Um, well, that second step, they talked about a higher power, but in the third step, they came right out and said the G word, you know. And so there I was. I was confronted with it. I was going to have to admit that there was something bigger than me that was running my life or that I was willing to let run my life. Um, I've heard, of, uh, I heard a lot of people talk about making the group their higher power. Um, if that works for you for a little while, go ahead. But look around, you know. They're us. <laughs> but if that's, if that's what you have to use, use it. It has got to be something bigger and better than me, something with, uh, something with my interests at heart. And it was important for me to hear that it was the care of God as I understood him. Because God that I had always known had been a gimme gotcha God. You know, 
I would always pray for stuff and I wouldn't get it. And then I thought it was either because I didn't pray right or because God didn't want me to have it. And that was it. That was my relationship with God. Uh, my sponsor started in about the fourth step, you know. Uh, now, I have to admit that when I, uh, when I first heard him read that I didn't want to jump up and down and say, yeah, pick me, pick me, I want to do that one. Uh, I was going to have to look at myself, you know. And that was the thing that was holding me back in my life was I had never looked at myself. I was always looking at you. It was always them. It was always it. It was never, ever me. Um, one year for Christmas, he got me a pen and pencil set. And he suggested, uh, and, and I do not recommend this to anybody in Al-Anon, and I won't let men that I sponsor do it. Uh, I had waited three years to do a four-step, and uh, that is not the way to recover in this program. Um, I did do a four-step, and I did do a fifth-step. You know, uh, when, when he finally uh, convinced me that I was going to do the four-step, we made the appointment for the fifth-step. And so um, I had to get after it. Uh, I was a little concerned. I was... Uh, I was editing the fifth step in my head on the way to his house, um, and I wanted to make sure that um, that I put everything in a proper perspective so he would understand. And um, you know, he had an interesting outlook on things. Um, I would tell him something, and he'd say, "Well, now is that actually how it happened?" And I said, "Well, I'm, I'm actually no. It was like this, sort of." Um, but I'm just telling you this so that it presents me in the best light. And he said, that's called lying. <laughs> I thought that was unnecessarily brutal. You know, there's a difference between rigorous honesty and brutal honesty. Yeah, I needed brutal honesty. Um, at any rate, I was really concerned about doing that fifth step. And so we got to the house and uh, we said a little prayer. And he said, um, okay, I know on the way over here you probably were thinking about this. He said, I want you to tell me the one thing that you decided not to ever tell anybody and that you were definitely not going to tell me. That's the only thing I want to hear. Ooh, this is going to get ugly in a hurry. You know, and I was a little concerned that he was going to tell me after we did the fifth step that I needed to go home, stay home. He didn't want to see me in a meeting anymore. Um, the fact is, the deeper we got into it, I thought he was having a little uh, tough time staying awake. You know, made me kind of wish I'd have heard his. Um, but you know, that second group of steps is about owning up, and the next group of steps is about making up. You know, uh, six and seven, they think. You know, if if you look in the original text in the big book, I think there's about three paragraphs devoted to those two steps, uh, and those are the toughest ever. You know, I did not understand, for example, in the seventh step, I didn't under, understand the difference between humility and humiliation. Uh, I didn't know that humility was not thinking less of myself. It was just thinking of myself less. You know, understanding myself in a relationship to that higher power that I was coming to believe in. Um, making the eighth step list was was not difficult for me. I just wrote down everybody and everything, you know, uh, my sponsor went back with me, and we went through that. He said, that's a little grandiose. Uh, he said, I'm kind of used to that. You? He said, you have, a, you have a little bit of an ego problem. Actually, you have a big ego problem. Uh, he explained to me that ego stood for easing God out. As long as I'm putting myself right in the middle of the universe, then there is no room for God. Um, made the list. Uh, you know, one of the things that I have learned is that not ever, ever, ever 
try and do the ninth step without first speaking to your sponsor. You know, uh, I, uh, uh, I I did that. I made I made some errors. You know, um, it was it was a it was a bad situation, and and I did not I did something that made a bad situation worse. Uh, and it says it says right in the AA 12 and 12 that we're not to do this. And we're not to do this to get relief for ourselves, to, to do it at the expense of others. You know, I was in the process. You know, what I didn't understand was that in working all these steps, working four through twelve, what I'm doing is carrying out that decision I made in three. You know, and three is about giving up control of our lives. In the Alanon twelve and twelve, it says to us, in in talking about the third steps, we only have to look at our many disappointments to realize that our control was at best rare. And more often, an illusion. And I was, uh, I was aware of that in my life. You know, I was making the ninth step. And, you know, when I got to the tenth step, that's one of the ones that gives me so much freedom. I love the freedom that is in the tenth step. Not that I continue to look at myself, and I have to continue to do that. And it's not something I do at the end of the day. It's not something I do monthly. It's like a, it's like a virus checker on a computer. That thing has to run in me constantly. It is a filter for everything I think, say, and do all throughout the day. And when I mean promptly admit it, it means right now. But the freedom in that step is the word when. Because I thought that after I, was, um, uh, after I had made my amends and completed all that process, that I was going to have to live the life of a saint. And I thought that's what people were going to expect of me, that I was going to have to be Saint D. Well, I haven't been anointed yet. And so, um, but, the, but the tenth step is that great freedom. I had a lot of trouble with step 11. You see, I was still struggling with the idea of God, and I was in a meeting one time, and I heard a friend of mine named Keith, and I hope I never, ever forget this story. Keith talked about a guy who was, um, I never felt like I was praying right, because when I was a little kid, my mother had told me to pray on my knees. And I thought that that was the way you were supposed to pray. Now, when I was a little kid, my mom took me to one of these Amen, Hallelujah, Everybody But Us Is Going to Hell churches, and there were some guys in there that could pray for about 45 minutes without taking a breath, and I couldn't do that either. But I was in a meeting, and my friend Keith told a story about a guy who, uh, who uh, wanted to pray. He wanted to pray on his knees, but he just couldn't do it. And so his sponsor told him, he said, at night when you go to bed, you throw your shoes back under the bed. And in the morning when you're down there fishing them out, you're not down there to humble yourself before God. You're not doing anything demeaning. You're down there to get your shoes. But while you're down there, throw a good word up. It's not going to hurt anything. I knew that was not the way to do it. I am an Al-Anon. I'm a former Marine. I know that your shoes belong in the closet, left on the left, right on the right. Heels aligned perfectly. And it's best to shine them before you go to bed. That way you don't have to do it when you get up. Um, I would not, I, I couldn't do that. I did, however, have an electric blanket, and I would slide the remote back underneath the bed. Now, I would get down on my knees in the morning, and I was fishing back there under the dust bunnies. I am an al I didn't realize if I got a hold of the cord, I could just pull it back out. But while I was down there, I started saying a good, I, I started saying a prayer, you know, and I started praying on my knees, and that's something I do to this day, you know. There's nothing anywhere that says anybody else has to do that. That's what I have to do for me, you know. The only place I've ever heard it say is in that original manuscript of the of the big book uh, that talks about uh, on our, humbly on our knees. Uh, the other thing about prayer was I didn't I didn't understand exactly how to pray. I didn't realize I'd been praying all my life, but I. I didn't understand how. Uh, one of the first prayers I was ever taught, and the version is quite different today because I've heard my, my uh, daughters teach it to our grandchildren, 
um, is uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to sleep. If I should die, you know, I didn't want anything to do with that prayer because I thought in order to get the good out of the prayer, I had to die. You know, that was that was my pers- my skewed per- perspective. I had a little friend in a meeting told me one time, she said, you know, in the morning, it's real simple to pray. In the morning, say, help. And at night, say thanks. And it's real important to remember the thanks. Remember the movie Bruce Almighty and the scene where the guy has got the, got the angel sitting in the corner of the room, all alone, nothing going on. He said, what's this? He said, this is where the, the thanks prayers come in. You know, and that's very important to me to every day to remember to say thanks. And I say it constantly in the day. You know, the twelfth step is one that I thought was going to be, uh, you know, I thought at, um, I thought once you work the steps, everything was going to be peachy and rosy. And then somebody pointed out to me in a step study that um, the word the is in there. Having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. And I thought, ooh, wait a minute. You mean all I get is a spiritual awakening? What does that mean? I was, I was growing. I was becoming a, I was becoming the kind of father that I wanted to be. I was becoming a, uh, uh, I was becoming an asset to my employer instead of a liability. I was becoming a, a good member of the community, um, and I didn't, I didn't see the value in that. Uh, I wanted the big house on the hill and right off in the sunset with the girl. You know, that's what I wanted. And I didn't understand that. And this uh, this person ex- explained to me in the meeting. She said, "You know, um, I read somewhere that a spiritual awakening can, can, in some terms, be described as a personality change. And in your case, that might not be a bad idea." <laughs> I didn't speak to her for a couple weeks either. Uh, during this time, I had had some changes in my employment. I had taken a promotion. I started going to daytime meetings. I met a whole different group of people. You know, um, I'm amazed today at the number of men. It's not unusual today for me to go to meetings. My home group is the Monday Men's Workshop. It's a men's meeting. Uh, but it's not unusual to go to meetings where there are as many men in Al-Anon as there are women. And that's a, that's a, a breakthrough. You know, It's a breakthrough in Al-Anon. Um, I started going to daytime meetings, and, and I was uh, I was amazed at the, the the whole different attitude and recovery. A lot of the people that come to daytime meetings in Al-Anon, where I live, are housewives who have to do that while their husbands are out of the house because they don't want them to know where they're going. They are the husbands are not yet in recovery. Um, I met a number of wonderful, wonderful people there. Um, there was one lady who used to come in, and she would she would have these little kids with her. Her name was Carol. It, it, it's not the Carol that was at the union office, a different Carol. But um, Carol was a she was just a just a sweetheart, you know. And she was a real nice gal, and she was in an unfortunate situation. And uh, she babysat. First, I thought she was really she's young looking, you know. And she she had these kids. I thought they were her kids. And she said, No, no, I babysit for these. My kids are older. And I found out that her kids and my kids went to high school together. I didn't know that. A couple of years later, Carol got divorced, um, and we started dating. And um, again, you know, we've we've been married for 18 years this July, and it's just amazing to me. You know, when Kathy said last night she'd been married for 18 years, and I was so I was so grateful for her talk about about the working with the women in prison, and and uh, I was also great she talked about the underwear because uh, I reminded I was reminded that today's Saturday. This is the day you change, and. Uh, <laughs> 
and I brought the other pair with me, so so why not? Um, I want to tell you that that um, the 14th step does not ever kick in just because you have been around for a long time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, there have been some bumps in the road. You know, life continues to happen. Excuse me. Life continues to happen and will continue to happen. <clears throat> when I'd been in Al-Anon about 15 years, I got a call on a Friday night and I was getting ready to leave the house. <clears throat> I was getting real, ready to leave the house to go to a meeting and my sister called me. And she said, I got something I'd like to talk to you about. And I said, well, okay. I said, I can stop in for a few minutes. Um, she said, I uh, got over to her house and I was on my way to the meeting. And she said, um, you know, I went to the doctor today and I had this lump under my arm and they took it out and uh, they're going to do some uh, tests on it. And they, um, they're going to go in. Uh, I have to go in and see the doctor Monday to get the results of the test. And I'd like you to go with me. That's the sister that I had fought with all my life. You know, we had never really been close. I had helped her out on a couple of occasions, but uh, not not much. Um, she had been a school teacher for 30 years. She was a wonderful teacher. She was a great person. Uh, she was generous. And she was warm-hearted. She took me into her home. Uh, I went to the doctor with her next morning, uh, next Monday morning. Um, we went in the room and he put some um, he put some slides up on the screen and, and it looked like one of those things that you see uh, in an observatory when you're laying back in the chair and you look up at the at the ceiling and they're showing the stars. Uh, and he said, uh, "These are your lungs." He said, "You have lung cancer that has metastasized to your liver, and you are not going to outlive it." Um, One of the things that my sister had always done, she had always been a faithful Chicago Cubs fan. God knows why. Uh, but she had always been a Cubs fan, but she had never been to Wrigley Field to see a game. And I told her, I said, we're going to go see a game in Wrigley Field. And we did. We flew to Chicago. We went there. We were there for a day. We saw a game. At the end of the first inning, the Cubs were down five to nothing. She looked at me and she said, well, at least... I got to see a game in Wrigley Field. Um, as it turned out, the wind was blowing out that day, and anything that got about 15 feet off the ground went out of the park, and the Cubs ended up winning something like 12 to 10. Uh, it was a great game. Um, we, got, we got back home. From the day of her diagnosis until the day of her death was 144 days. Um, I was employed with a, with a company then that um, allowed me to take off and spend time with my sister. Um, and there were a lot of people that uh, that talked to me, and they said, you know, it's uh, it's a very admirable thing you're doing, helping your sister die. And I said, no, I'm not helping her die. I helped her live. I helped her live, and I held her hand when she took her last breath. And that was a, one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in my life. Um, alcoholism does not go away. You know, we had a son, a son-in-law, <clears throat> married to our uh, our second daughter. Um, uh, that son-in-law went through treatment. He's now six years sober. I'm grateful to say, you know. Uh, you know. There were some bumps in the road of that marriage, and they have been an example to me. They have been an example to me in, in how, to, how to live a, a principled married life. Um, that daughter, um, their first child, she went in for their uh, sonogram, what's it called? Ultrasound. 
at 20 weeks, and there was not a heartbeat. Um, they lost their first baby. That was my first granddaughter. It was from, from my side of the family. Um, that was a very difficult time. Uh, they induced labor, and she labored for over 50 hours. And she said, it's very difficult to know that, uh, that I'm going to labor all this time and have all this pain, and I'm not going to get to keep my baby. It was very, very difficult to watch. Uh, my wife and I have a wonderful life today. We have, a, we have a great marriage. We have a happy home. A year ago, we found the perfect home. All we had to do was move in. We just moved our furniture from the old house to the new house. Um, our daughter bought, bought, our, uh, bought our old house, and so there was no problem. Within 15 minutes, we had bought and sold a house. Um, <clears throat> when I was unpacking my suitcase yesterday, there was a card in it. It says, I love you and I miss you when we're apart. When we are not together, you are always in my thoughts. When I am doing something without you, I find myself silently talking to you. When I am confronted with an important decision, I find myself wondering what you would do. When I take a walk past a place that we like to go, I find myself filled with memories. It doesn't matter what I am doing or where I am going. When we are not together, half of everything is missing. I can't wait to be with you again, but until then, I carry you very close to my heart. And my love for you helps me to get through this time that we are apart. I love you. Hugs and kisses, CLS. That's the girl of my dreams. That's what my life is like today. I am so grateful to have been asked to come here. I thank you for listening, and thank you for my life. Thank you.